0: In today's episode, we're joined by elite racewalker and Olympic athlete Jemima Montag. She has recently returned home from the 2022 Commonwealth Games after winning gold in the 10,000 metre event. In addition to her sporting accomplishments, Jemima is also a full-time medical student and International Olympic Committee young leader who's pioneering a program to help break barriers for young women in sport. We spoke to Jemima about common misconceptions in the sport of racewalking. Her involvement with Project Supernova at the Australian Institute of Sport and her holistic approach to preparing for elite-level competition. Welcome everyone to Radix Nutrition's podcast where we discuss all things health, performance and nutrition. From the design process behind our products to the amazing feats of the people who use them. So Jemima, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me Luke, I'm excited.
0: So I'm really curious how you got into race walking. It's something that I'm sure you get asked a, a heck of a lot. Was it something that, that ran in your family? Was, were you running and then you got into walking? How do, how do you end up in the sport itself?
1: So race walking is one of the events in athletics, in track and field. And little athletics is one of the most common hobbies for Australians to do when they're young. My mum had also done track and field. She was a 400 metre hurdler. So when my sisters and I were old enough, you know, we were already signed up to all of the other sports, swimming, ballet, basketball, soccer, tennis. But she thought, we'll throw them into Little Athletics as well. Maybe they'll like it, maybe they won't. And the way Little Athletics works is you go around as a little group. I was seven years old at the time, so it's been, you know, 16 or so years. And you give all of the other events a try. So I tried my best to be a good sprinter. I tried to throw a javelin and get over the high jump bar. But in the end, I realized that I was well suited to the endurance event. So I was pretty good at the long distance running and walking, but seemed to have a little natural ability for the race walking, which, you know, it's quite a quirky event. People laugh at me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know it looks funny. And in fact, the Australian television show Kath and Kim, which aired um, a couple of decades ago, has done uh, me no services because they make it look really funny. (laughs) But... You know, I recognised fairly early on that it was going to be something that would give me some pretty rare opportunities to put the green and gold Australian mm. colours on, uh, to travel all over the world, to challenge myself, to give purpose and structure to my week, to meet people, um, and that was awesome. So, quirky as it may be, it's been a great pastime and hobby so far.
0: I think that's something yeah. that maybe gets a bit lost in, in translation, as how difficult it actually is walking with the correct technique to like not get disqualified but keep that pace I mean your your pace your your recent race it was 10k in about 42 minutes right and that's I mean I don't think I could run that fast you know so that's something to me that's really interesting is actually walking that fast is probably even harder than if you were to try and jog that fast right
1: and it is harder because if you think about the gait, when you take a step and you're race walking, you need to strike the ground with your heel and have a straight knee. And that basically means that every step you take, you're actually breaking and your hamstrings have to sort of generate all the force for the next step. Whereas when you're running, you can get into that groove and that rhythm and sort of go along. So I certainly find race walking harder than running. And I do do a bit of both in my weekly training plan. But to, to go at the speeds that we were going, so it was for listeners roughly four minutes and 10 or 12 seconds per kilometre for uh, the Commonwealth Games 10,000 metre race. It takes a lot of targeted strength and conditioning work mm. and a really detailed training plan and years and years of practising that gait to make it feel natural. But honestly, it's only been a little over three weeks since the Commonwealth Games and I can already tell you I've lost... Oh, it feels like i've never race walked in my life Oh, really? i went out and tried walking in the park yesterday arvo with my mum and it's amazing how quickly you lose a feel for that action so it's definitely something we need to really hone in the lead into big events
0: is that something that just you said you went out for a walk in the park yeah do you have to sort of like flick a switch between competition walking and when you're just walking around? Like when you, when you walk around, I'm sure you don't go at, at that breakneck speed, but do you, do you find yourself um, falling into that that rhythm or that technique or is it something like quite different? You only do it in, in training and competition and then you, you switch it off.
1: I think it's quite different. Like I actually walk pretty slowly socially. I'm only five yeah. foot two and I have very long limbs, So when I'm socially strolling, that's where we are. And even switching between race walking and running is quite difficult to do. You know, people often ask whether you're tempted to break into a run mm. when you're in a race walking race. Uh, but it's actually really quite difficult to switch from one to the other because you have those locked knees and the pelvic roll, which is pretty much the opposite of running, where you want your pelvis quite stationary yeah. and then knees are obviously bent. So I think, yeah, I'm always in one realm or the
0: other. Is that, that breaking force that you talk about, is that quite stressful on, on your body and, and your, your knees and the structures?
1: It certainly can be. I think the assumption is that every race walker has a hip and knee replacement by 40,
0: right.
1: which isn't totally inaccurate, but a nice myth to bust is that there's actually more force going through your joints when you run, because you're sort of coming from a height, planting that foot and really landing on it vertically. Right. Whereas race walking is more of a smooth horizontal translation when it's done beautifully, and so there's less load. We do do over 100 kilometres of training a week, mm, and those right. kilometres take us longer. So you still have the wear and tear and the overuse, yep. and you know the biggest injuries we're at risk of are sort of stress fractures or little tendinopathies, particularly of the hamstring, like you mentioned with that lost knee.
0: Sure. So what's, what's the actual difference between, um, like, the regulation on it? What What is the rule that, that keeps you walking compared to running?
1: So there's two rules. And when we're racing, there's a number of judges standing around the track watching us. And they can only use their naked eye. So they're not allowed to film and slow it down or anything. And those two rules are the straight knee rule. So when you plant that front foot, you need to have a lot to knee. And the second rule is contact, so one foot on the ground at all times. Yep. And so this is something that we have to work on week in, week out with biomechanists, and we do a lot of filming and slowing it down and working out different technical cues that will work in our mind to communicate to our body what to do. And it's something that I struggle with a little bit this season. Uh, I went over to Spain for a bit of a warm-up meet in late May and actually received three red cards from the judges, which okay. means you're just And it was a real challenge because I'd taken a few days out of med school to fly over. I somehow contracted tonsillitis, uh, probably a bit too stressed, pulled in a few too many directions Mm. before leaving. And so I wasn't in my best physical form on the start line, received those three red cards, Clearly wasn't doing my best technique on the day, and then had to sort of fly all the way back to Australia thinking, what was the point of that? but it was an incredible turning point in the season because it was a real wake-up call of, okay, if you're going to line up on the start line at World Champs and Comm Games in one month, the technique side of it really needs to have all of your focus because in race walking, there's no use nailing the nutrition and the physical training and the psychology if you're going to line up and get disqualified. So the last five or six weeks of my season were totally um, dedicated to technique work.
0: Yeah, sure. That's quite an um, interesting difference to me yep. compared to running. Because running, there's not a rule like that. You know, it's it's just you get there as, as fast as you can carry yourself. Whereas with walking, you've you've got these these rules that you have to stay within. And I'm curious, like you said, you you got those three red cards and you're again disqualified because of your technique. Is that something that happens just when you're on, when you're really pushing the limit and you, the faster you go, the closer you get to breaking those rules? Or is it something that's more like a lapse in, in concentration?
1: I'd say it's a combination of factors. You're more likely to pick up red cards when you're trying to go faster and faster because there is a, a limit to how fast someone can race walk mm. safely with one foot on the ground. And so if the judges can see that you're trying to break away from a pack or maybe you're trying to catch the next pack, they might suspect you of cheating and look extra hard. The other time that you might pick up red cards is when you're fatiguing. So if listeners visualize a marathon or an ultra marathon runner, when they get an hour or two into their race, then they aren't as in control of their limbs and the technique that they're running with. And often, you know, in those last sections of a marathon, runners do look like they're really tiring and their technique Mm. changes that is another time where we will receive red cards and warnings because as you fatigue and tire, you're not as in control or able to do that perfect walking. So, you know, one of my Canadian race walking friends calls, it, calls walking running with rules. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I love about it because it's running with an added challenge and to be constantly working on this technical aspect and to really pursue that mastery is... Um, Is a cool thing to dedicate this period of my life
0: to. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Is it something that the the great race walkers are are right on the edge of that sort of technique and maybe breaking the rules here and there, but only slightly so it's not picked up on? Is is that something that you're really like right on that line?
1: I guess so, particularly when they're going at pace. Um, But certainly the people who are winning at the Olympic Games and World Championships are always the most perfect technicians because... The ultimate race walking technique is the one that isn't only safe by the judges but it's also energy efficient and fast Mm. so if you can get to that and pick those three boxes it means that you just look totally calm you're not even expending energy compared to everyone else and you're actually getting to the finish line first as well so that's that's the optimum goal Mm.
0: so you spend a lot of time obviously practicing (coughs) Um, the technique of walking, but you said you also incorporate running into your routine. Is that So that's training for race walking. That's the reason you're doing that running. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so we're still putting load through the joints and it's a slightly different action, but anything that sort of builds cardiorespiratory fitness is helpful overall. So in the off season, particularly between now that some games is over and perhaps November, December, we can really do any cardiorespiratory training we feel like. So that might include cycling, swimming, boxing, classes.
2: Yep.
1: Uh, and my training partner and I have actually decided to run a marathon in a month. Okay.
2: And so we've actually
1: focused the focus completely onto running. And other aspects of the week, um, strength and conditioning is probably the other key aspect of our training. And that'll be two times a week. Um, And really focused on sort of posterior chain, need really strong glutes, hamstrings and calves Mm. and feet to take all of those steps. And so, yeah, running takes up a smaller proportion of the training, but you can run the easy afternoon sessions as long as the key speed sessions and long walks are done race walking.
0: That's cool. Hey, um, we actually haven't mentioned that you're fresh off a a Commonwealth Games gold for the, the 10K, that's right?
1: Yeah, that was really exciting. In the past few decades, uh, the racewalkers have been out on the road with a 20 and 50k option with the marathon runners, which is cool, but I guess we tend to not pull much of a crowd and sometimes we don't really feel part of track and field. So we were just lucky that Birmingham Commonwealth Games decided to give us a 10,000 metre track walk. And it meant that for the first time ever, I had 35,000 people hmm. in the audience making noise for me, which was a very insane little spectacle, something I had to chat to my sports psych like about beforehand just to get ready oh, really? for how that would feel. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and Birmingham, there was a lot of pressure because I had won a gold medal on the Gold Coast as well yep. with my lovely Kiwi friend, Alana, coming second. And that was a special day, but it meant that everyone expected another goal in Birmingham. Mm. So lots of pressure to sit with and also having had that little glyph in Spain with the disqualification just a couple of months prior, there was a lot resting on that race.
0: Yeah. How, how was that with, with the crowd? So you're not used to that many people and, and how, how did you find that um, in terms of how it actually affected your performance?
1: On the day, it was just an absolute party. It was so much fun. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I thought they're either going to totally psych me out and I'm going to feel just intimidated by the noise of it all, or I'm going to get out there and just be like, wow, this is such a unique little situation and let's just enjoy. So my race plan was sort of to sit behind whoever was taking it out for the first half. Yeah and then to go past them quite quickly and see how much space and how many meters I could put on second and third across the last 5K. And I executed that nicely. Uh, and I actually, once I had put enough distance on second and third, I could actually enjoy the crowd and interact with them. So uh, one of my training partners was make, making fun of my sort of victory lap. But <laughs> when I had about 450 meters to go, I just started waving and, and encouraging the yeah. crowd and getting them to be louder. And I sort of felt like the conductor of an orchestra. It was quite fun yeah, and something that I'll certainly never be able to do again. So even with 35,000 people, I could hear the voices of mum and dad and my partner, probably because my ears are quite attuned to yeah, their sure. particular language. But um, yeah, it was a crazy experience.
0: That's quite cool actually hearing it from you because when when you won your medal, I was reading an article about it and it was pretty much word for word what you just said, um, reflecting on, on your race, saying that you were with the pack for about half the race and then it said you made your move and then it was talking about how you had a lead and you were just enjoying the crowd. So that's, um, that's quite neat. It was it was sort of planned that way and it sounded like it went exactly the plan. So was that your yeah. first 10K
1: no like we do 10k races throughout the year but they are hardly ever at major competitions they're just sort of for state championships and national championships and little domestic races in australia uh historically there was a town ten meter walk at olympic and commonwealth games level particularly for the women and then for some reason track and field decided to shift it to the 20 and the 50 kilometer out on the road but i'm hoping that going forward You know, the the next Commonwealth Games in 2026 are actually in my hometown in Melbourne. Mm. So maybe I'll have some sway and I'll be able to ask the organisers to give us another track event because it was much more fun with a big crowd.
0: Yeah. Do you prefer the 10K to the 20? Or if if it did have both, would you do them both or would you just choose one?
1: I think 20 is as far as I want to go at the moment. They have introduced a 35K option for women as well which uh, is just a very long time to be walking. That takes sort of two and three quarter hours. So the 10K is just a little more exciting. I love the challenge of seeing how much faster and faster I can go. There's some big Australian records to chase. There was a woman by the name of Kerry Saxby who was huge in Australian and global race walking just before I was born. And so I'm still sort of hunting down her time and i love to just keep Seeing how quick I can get, as opposed to seeing how far I can go,
0: hmm.
1: uh, but we'll see. The ten games fun at
0: the moment. I was going to ask you about um, at the Com Games about your your nutrition. Obviously, being a, a nutrition company, where we're very interested in that sort of stuff. But I'm actually curious what the nutrition's like at the games, and if it's something that is supplied to you, or if you bring your own.
1: Yeah, so there was a few options you can totally bring your own and people with um, particular diets that they follow or intolerances, uh, like for example, I have a friend who's celiac. They find that it's much more simple to bring their own and ensure that they're out of the dining hall where things may be contaminated. There were a few different options. So the Australian team set up a little nutrition hub Mm. near where all the Australians were staying. And that was really nice because if you were a bit intimidated by the massive dining hall with people from all over the world, and all of the options, you can actually just go to the smaller country's nutrition hub and the dietitians have set up options that you recognize from home. Yep. And that was also a bit of a nostalgic thing because I think food can be so connected to memory. And if you are missing home by that point at a major championship, it was just nice to go in there and see Australian things like, like Wheat Bix and Vegemite yep. and simple simple reminders of home, but also from a nutrition point of view, our guts were adapted to tolerate. Yeah. And so if you, especially pre-competition, if you didn't want to make too many risks and ensure that your tummy was feeling happy on race day, then I tended to go to that Australian nutrition hub. And then on other days, if you were game enough, you could go to the big, the big dining hall mm. where they sort of had one cuisine after the other set up with volunteers to help you. And in this post-COVID or COVID sort of era that we're in, it has to be all super sanitary. Yeah. So there's volunteers to actually serve you, everyone's gloved, everyone's masked, everyone's sanitised, really careful. And then there's sort of tables and chairs in the centre and you can sit down and make a friend from another country or meet up with someone that you've already met at a previous competition. And all of the food options in there were... You know healthy and colorful and wonderful and yum uh, but yeah as you said if athletes had a particular food particularly pre-competition that yeah. they know fits nicely with them or gives them adequate energy then they could have brought that along in their suitcase and you could sit outside anywhere on the grass and, and have your own options
0: that is an interesting sort of thought process that crossed my mind you said um, that your gut is used to the foods that the Australian camp put on for you. And it just crossed my mind that when you go to a competition such as the Com Games or the Olympics, you're changing so much of your environment and there's so much that your body may not be used to. And so if we go to a place where there's a a big temperature difference, for example, you would probably train for that and, and try to adapt and acclimate your body, right? But I think that's also something there's an argument that you can make for having to do that with food and that's something that we often have to communicate um, with our meals as people want to take them on a, a massive expedition of of a few months for example and and they take our meals and it's something that we sort of have to tell them make sure you acclimate to it because you're going from one diet to a completely different diet for for three months and that's going to be the only thing you're eating and it it can actually put your body under a bit of stress, you know, and it's it's something it's not used to and you may not perform as well as if you're used to it. So it's quite interesting that that you brought that up.
1: Yeah, well, something that's really similar is training your gut. And we do this a lot as endurance athletes, training your gut to actually take on gels and sports drink and carbohydrates throughout training and races because some people think that they can get away with never practising intra race fueling and training and then just turning up on the start line of a marathon or a big competition and suddenly having sports gels and sports drinks mm. and your gut just doesn't tolerate that and you know having stomach cramps or needing to stop for the bathroom is just going to waste minutes and minutes and make you totally uncomfortable yeah so for example particularly in hot weather we've trialed a number of nutritional interventions um like a hyperhydration, where we're using glycerol um, mixed with salt and sort of hydrolite so that we load three hours before the race yep. and you really need to train your gut. We'll do that six to ten times in the season before the main event so that we know how it's going to feel and our gut's ready and then even practicing how many sports gels you'll have during and how many grams of carbohydrate per hour or per kilogram of body mass yep. and then caffeine on top of that. All of these things take regular training so that you're ready to go.
0: Yeah, and that's also an interesting point, is that when you're, when you're racing, it's essentially like that f- uh, flight or fight response, and typically when you're digesting food, you want to be doing that when you're, when you're resting, right? And your body doesn't want to be using its, its processes to digest food when you're actually out there doing something, but for an yeah. endurance athlete, like you sort of pointed out, it actually becomes quite important, right? Yeah. Awesome. So on the topic of nutrition, um, we're really proud that you, that you use our meals um, and you're, you're such a successful athlete and we were curious how you actually use our meals and, and how you find them valuable to, to your routine and I know you're, you're super busy with a, a bunch of other stuff aside from being an athlete, so can you just talk us through um, how you actually use our, our meals in your day to day?
1: Oh, so I was introduced to ready meals at the Tokyo Olympics one year ago because our sports dietitian ordered a big box of them and brought them along and initially I'd never used um, whole food freeze-dried meals before mm. and was perhaps a little hesitant but when I saw how delicious and easy they were and particularly for me what won me over was the clean ingredients on the back because Often with any food that comes in a packet, you're suspicious that there'll be all sorts of numbers and preservatives and artificial sweetness and whatever. Which of course there wasn't. So I was more than happy to give them a go. And when I did, I was so impressed by the ease at which they, the, the ease that they added into our life, particularly on tour. So when we're on long haul flights or when we're in villages or when we just don't have much time between training sessions, they were really helpful. And then. I started my conversation with you guys over at Radix uh, because I was about to start a full-time medical degree Mm. this February and I really wanted to establish some kind of partnership because I wanted to really weave Radix meals and protein powders into my week as a full-time medical student and full-time athlete and it's one of the best decisions I've made. So, for example, today we went out and ran a half marathon in the morning bit of toast before but to be able to put a scoop of the radix protein powder in my post-run smoothie I like to blend it with a few other things so I put a banana and blueberries and spinach and water in there as well Um, but to know that I'm safe from a drug testing point of view Mm. the quality of the protein is unmatched anywhere else Um, I've got all the right things in there to shake it up and have after training and then how I might use the meal for the rest of the day. You know, I've had meetings, we're doing this podcast now, I've got many, many lectures to watch. So to be able to go boil the kettle and rehydrate, maybe the basil pesto, um, which will fuel me through another training session and the rest of my study, yeah. uh, is not only yummy and easy, but I know from a nutritional point of view that the experts over at Radix have done it absolutely perfectly. Um, so, all in all, that's how it fits into my little regime. And my sports dietitian was the one who introduced ladies to me in the first place, so I didn't even have mm-hmm. to convince her it was a good idea.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I I use them in a, in a similar way when basically I just um, don't have time to cook and I want yep. something that's still going to give me the benefit as if I did cook um, a, a massive healthy meal. And then you look at the options that you actually have for fast food and I don't mean that in the in the sense of what we've come to learn as fast food I mean food that you can prepare fast it it pretty much is just fast food now um, which is all obviously pretty pretty bad for you and if you want a a healthy option you usually have to prepare it yourself so that's really cool to hear it that you use it in the same way
1: and I think one of the other just to add in another one of the great things is that When you look on the back of any of the Radix packs, particularly the savoury main meal, the number of veggies and nutrients that you're getting in there would actually be really difficult to create on your own, in your own kitchen, you know, with all of the ingredients because of the way the meals are made. So some could argue that it's even a step up nutritionally than what you'd be able to do on your own cooking.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the product development that we do to... To make a meal is, is months and months of of research and design and you'd never do that for next Saturday's dinner you know so that's kind of mm-hmm. kind of the difference that um, we think we can provide which which is cool hey um, I'm curious doing your medical degree obviously that's super super full- on and being an athlete super full-on as well do you find that the medical degree can feed into your your knowledge of being an athlete at all?
1: Definitely. Uh, We've just finished a musculoskeletal block at uni and they complement each other so well. So I'd be sitting in the tutorial room trying to remember the different joints and nerves and blood vessels and muscles and I can think back to injuries that I've had or conversations I've had with physios and relate it to my study, and then it can feed back the other way. So Mm. they do complement each other well. It's obviously a bit of a headache from a time management point of view. Yeah. And it hasn't been easy. I want to be real and transparent with the listeners. There's <laughs> been breakdowns and crying. And sometimes there's very little room for fun. So I have mm. to actually plan fun and plan rest into my week because otherwise you can get carried away and it's all taken up by lectures and training. Yeah. Um, but I'm enjoying it so far. I was not sure whether it would be for me because I'm actually a bit queasy with blood and gut. Yeah. And I probably want to work more in the public health space with nutrition and physical activity. Um, but I'm throwing myself into the challenge and despite fainting a few times at the hospital when I see disgusting things, <laughs> I think I'm getting better and better.
0: <laughs> so that, that application of, of science into your training is something I'm really interested in. You wrote a blog article for us a while back and, and you talked about um, these, these different sort of science and technology applications that you've done in your training and and um, done a bit of research around those. Can you just talk through what you're currently doing for our listeners?
1: Absolutely. So we've been really fortunate and lucky to be connected early on with Professor Louise Burke, mm. who's sort of the guru or the godmother, people call her, of sports nutrition, certainly in Australia, if not around the world. So for the last four or five years, I've been going on training camps every January, She calls them supernova training camps and always writes really impressive research articles out of them. Mm. So at those training camps, uh, we are often divided into different nutritional groups or interventions. So often we're testing whether a high carbohydrate, a ketogenic or a high fat or a low energy availability group is best for endurance training. So we will do some baseline measures at the beginning like blood tests DEXA body composition scans yeah. to measure bone density and other hormonal markers. We'll do a VO2 max test to see, sort of, as a measure of fitness and maximal ox- oxygen uptake. Mm. And we often do a ten thousand meter race as well. So they've got all that data. Then you've got the couple of weeks on the diet, and you've got sports dietitians and PhD candidates preparing the food for you at the Australian Institute of Sport. That's all very nice and easy. Yeah. Well, it's nice depending on which group you're allocated. Uh, a couple of times I've been in the low energy availability group which I'm not going to lie is a massive challenge particularly if you like eating, uh, because (laughs) you just get a bit moody and sad (laughs) anyway and then we retest all of those things again at the end and they've been able to measure sort of which of those diets is is best for us Mm. and I think the preliminary findings are certainly that you need adequate carbohydrate availability for endurance events Um, there is I think something to say for the high fat ketogenic approach, particularly if you're going at a longer, sorry, lower intensity for longer. Yeah. So I know a lot of ultra endurance athletes really like that ketogenic approach. Um, but I think for what we do, where it's sort of an hour to an hour and a half of higher intensity exercise, mm. then the findings are that high carbohydrate availability, particularly sandwiched around key sessions is important. And that low energy availability interventions might have a place when you're trying to achieve a certain body composition before a competition because it's a bit of a touchy subject and you need to be really careful because you don't want to develop disordered eating habits or relative energy deficiency in sport. But I think we've trialed before the Tokyo Olympics and I think maybe there's a space if people emotionally are ready to cope with a a short intervention for that lower energy availability just for a week or so.
0: Yeah. So is that that red S, that relative energy deficiency, is that something that you've experienced yourself? Because it it seems to be sort of a a really big issue, especially in, um, well, mainly for females, but also males can get it as well. And it's something that people may not even realise is happening.
1: Yeah. So it is a syndrome and it's a collection of, things that we may feel so for me when I finished school and I was 18 I decided to take this sport a little more seriously and that involved moving from the 10k to the 20k distance and so my training volumes doubled but because I hadn't yet connected with a sports dietitian the only nutrition information and advice I was getting was from online from friends from coaches maybe parents and none of these people really knew or were really giving me helpful messages. Mm. And in fact, I think sometimes when we rely too much on social media for nutrition advice, particularly from maybe influencers or people who aren't accredited to, to give us that advice, it can be harmful, particularly for young boys and girls. So I fell into a very difficult track of underfueling and mm maybe not over-training, but certainly training too much for the fuel that I actually had on board. And the way this manifested for me was feeling as though my recovery rates were really slow. Yep. Um, I didn't have any extra energy after training to actually be social and study. I was really low. My mood went all over the place. And other things for female athletes, like a stop of menstrual cycles can be another really obvious marker yep. of being in that dangerous territory. So eventually, when I started to notice some of these symptoms and started speaking to a sports dietitian, we did a few tests and the key ones that are helpful are that DEXA body composition scan because that shows you whether your bone mineral density and your proportions of muscle and fat are going down and dropping to a danger zone where you are at risk of stress fracture and stress injury. And other, another important test we did was the resting metabolic rate or the basal metabolic rate test where you sort of are so relaxed that you think you're about to sleep but you're not allowed to sleep yep. and you're breathing <laughs> into a tube and they see how much energy your body is utilising at rest just to stay alive. Hmm. And if that's getting quite low, that shows that if your body's response to chronic low energy availability, that it actually slows your metabolism right down. Hmm because it needs to prioritise energy to the brain and to the vital organs. And if you're not fueling enough, then it'll slow your metabolism right down. So we were able to see, okay, resting metabolic rate is looking far too slow and and low, and bone mineral density and those DEXA numbers are also looking like we're in a bit of a danger zone. So that was a big wake-up call for me. And again, the first time I'd connected with a sports dietitian or started learning about these things. And it was the start of a one or two year journey to mm. correct, um, to correct some of those markers, to learn a whole lot more about actually helpful nutrition messaging. Yeah. Um, and now I feel as though I'm at the point where I've regained, you know, my body trusts me again to fuel it well and through connecting with some of these experts like Louise Burke and my dietitian, Jessica Roswell, um, as well as using Radix products and, you know, leaning in to fueling well, mm. I've been able to really avoid any major injuries, which is, which is a real exciting thing given yeah. that I do kilometres a week.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, people, they often underestimate how much they actually need to fuel themselves and especially when you get a a young athlete who's doing big distance um ultra endurance all that sort of thing they they really don't realize especially because they might see people around them who don't train what they're eating and just like you said sort of have this misinformation going around and the amount that you need to fuel your body it, it can actually be really huge and that's something that it becomes a learning experience like for yourself and um It's really great that you can sort of talk about it and and educate people because they might catch it out early.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think whenever we're, you know, as humans, it's natural for us to compare ourselves to others. And particularly, you know, if you're the only sort of physically active or athlete person in your household and it's dinner time and you are maybe receiving comments from family members across the table because, you know, they mean well, but they might just make a little judgment of how much you put on your plate or if you're out catching up with uni friends or work friends and you've trained a whole lot more than them today and they don't know that they might say something like oh you're hungry today or you're (laughs) really you know treating yourself but i think just becoming aware that it's a good thing that Mm. you're fueling adequately and maybe having a few responses up your sleeve to say to that friend or that family member just to sort of reassure them that you're doing what's right for you and you know there's no need to pass judgment
0: So another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, another project that you've got on the go, which is this um, Girls Play On, which is overcoming barriers and participation in sport. So for our listeners, can you explain a bit about that and and what sort of made you um, want to start this and then get involved?
1: Yeah, so Play On came about through something called the IOC Young Leaders Program. So the IOC stands for the International Olympic Committee, and it's a relatively new program, but basically they select 25 people from around the world through a six week application process. And I had so much imposter syndrome, I didn't even want to put my application in because I thought, what's the point? Hundreds of people are applying. There's only 25 spots, but a little encouragement from my sister and my dad got me over the line. And the successful applicants are the IOC young leaders for the next, uh, the next two and a half years. We've already had 18 months and it's a four year program. Yep. And what that means is that each of us are building a sport-based social business, a solution to a problem that we're passionate about in our local community. So the idea is to sort of act locally whilst thinking globally. So we're each addressing a particular sustainable development goal. So for some of the IOC young leaders in other countries, the pressing local issue for them might connect to access to clean water Mm. or food security. Or perhaps there's civil unrest and they're bringing two sides of a divided nation in Cyprus together for a sailing contest like one of the women Sophia is doing. In Australia and New Zealand, we're we're pretty fortunate to have fairly good food security and access to clean water and no civil unrest, Um, so the pressing local issue that I was passionate about and that I wanted to solve with my project was the decline in participation of women and girls in sport and recreation. So in my state of Victoria, by the time women grow to be adults, one in five of them do no physical activity at all, and girls are dropping out of sport at about double the rate of boys. Mm. And the key time for that is between the ages of 12 and 15, mostly sort of by 15. So I started out a research year trying to figure out why people are dropping out at these rates, what the barriers are. I read some literature, I spoke to real women and girls in my life about stories and what could be better and how a project could possibly address this. Mm. And it became obvious that we need much better awareness and education around that adolescent age. And I wasn't sure whether to target school groups or sport clubs, but I knew I wanted to develop some kind of course or workshop where I can actually have Olympic athletes who have experience and have overcome those barriers to reach the pinnacle of sport, giving back and teaching um, and mentoring these younger girls who might be at risk of dropping out um, because of those barriers. So the barriers that came up time and time again were things like body image, disordered relationships with food, uniforms, barriers um, to inclusivity. So girls who might have a disability or they come from a diverse racial background or a different sexual orientation or perhaps they're in a bigger body. These people haven't seen themselves represented in sport and physical activity up until more recently Mm. and that's a huge barrier as well. So having heard all of these stories about why women and girls are dropping out of sport and physical activity, I came up with four modules and that's what the Play On course covers. So the first is female athlete health where they learn all about menstrual cycles and a few other topics. The second is nutrition, uh, where they learn about the spectrum of relationships with food and how we can go from sort of disordered relationships to really seeing that all foods can fit in body-positive sporting environments. The third module is about mental health and body image. And so we talk about having a whole toolbox of things that we can come back to when we're struggling with mental health. We talk about being vulnerable and creating support networks. And rather than aiming for sort of loving our bodies, which has been a bit of a buzz thing over the last few years, Mm. it's more about just body neutrality and actually gratitude for what our bodies do for us rather than focusing on how they look. And in the final module, we talk about inclusive spaces. So how can sport and sporting environments actually be set up to include people from different bodies, different racial backgrounds, different abilities, um, different sexes, so that we shift away from blaming women and girls for being lazy or for not wanting to be active to actually questioning whether the environment are welcoming them and exciting, are exciting for them to come and join. Mm -hmm. So long story short, I've been piloting the Play On program around Victoria this year and I'm hoping that in 2023, I can really roll it out through more and more schools and sports clubs so that more adolescent girls have access to all of the experts and the the advice and the knowledge that I wish I had when I was 13 to 15.
0: It sounds like a very holistic approach to um, addressing these barriers, right? And I mean, sport isn't just about the physical. And I think that's what a lot of people forget. So that that sounds really neat. Is that something that, You wanted to get into because you really enjoy your sport and and you see other people running into these barriers or are the barriers something you experienced yourself?
1: Yeah, both. So when I reached sort of puberty and my body started changing and I started to feel really confused and lost and I I couldn't explain to myself why I was feeling different ways, um, that was the first time where I really wanted to give up. And in fact, I did give up on my Olympic dreams through year 11 and 12 through to being an 18 year old. And it was only through having a really supportive family uh, who believed in me and encouraged me back on track that I was able to become an Olympian. But I was very, very close to to not reaching that goal and many of the friends that I made through sport as a young girl have subsequently faced those unique barriers that we mentioned before. So. I guess play on is broader than just wanting girls and women to be playing sport and be active because I don't really mind whether their goal is to become an Olympian or if their goal is just to go for a run or join the local netball club. The broader point of it is to work towards gender equality because what I've seen is that the skills and the life lessons um, that women and girls and, and all of us learn in the sporting context are really difficult to learn anywhere else. They're quite unique to sport and physical activity. So learning to be confident, learning to look after our bodies, seeing that men, women and non-binary people can be on an equal playing field, quite literally, um, and having more women and girls involved in sport in all areas, not only as athletes, but also as referees and managers and coaches means that you might have young boys and men on the sporting field with a women referee or with a woman coach or manager. And it teaches them that women women can hold all different types of roles in life. Um, and I think to be more respectful and to um, give women the confidence to put their hand up for a whole range of jobs in the future. So I think involving women and girls in physical activity, not only as athletes but in any role, then hopefully contributes to that fifth sustainable development
0: goal of gender equality yeah that's awesome and I think now that you mention it that is probably something I've I've noticed even on on tv and and just looking around as as you said women more involved in in refereeing roles and um and and those sort of not only being in the playing roles but in all these other roles involved in sport um it is typically something that we're very used to seeing dominated by men right and i can see how as a young female if you're surrounded by that you can kind of understand why that that dropout rate from sport and and similar disciplines is um is much higher than men so i think that's um yeah that's a a really neat take on on what you're doing hey before we finish up um I want to ask you about your, your future plans, because obviously you're, you're fresh off your gold Commonwealth medal, so where do you go from here?
1: So I'm hoping to go to two more Olympic Games. We've got the Paris Olympics to look forward to in 2024 and then the LA Olympics in 2028. Um, and in that time frame, I'm hoping to finish my medical degree with a Master of Public Health as well, so that'll probably take me another four and a half years. Mm. And I'll just chip away at that slowly. I'm not in a rush. Um, Slowly, slowly, by the end of 2028 Olympics, hopefully, study is wrapped up as well. And aside from that, I hope to continue developing this play-on project for women and girls in Victoria. Maybe I'll be able to expand it to become nationwide, Um, but we'll just have to see. So a few things going on in tandem, but they all complement themselves as, as we talked about today.
0: Awesome. Jemima, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me.
1: No worries. Thanks, Luke.